0: Uh, I had a thought about a particular Bible series or a series of lessons uh, to connect some things together. I don't know how it would work out. I'm going to investigate a little bit. But you know what's interesting is that there are many times in which there are Old Testament characters and events that are mentioned in the New Testament. And, of course, we get kind of used to that, the idea that the the Old Testament and the New Testament are connected together and that much of the audience of the gospel in the first century were those who uh, of Jewish descent and coming out of Judaism were well aware of uh, many of those particular events. But one thing I think is interesting that might be interesting about looking at that perspective is not only to notice how many times that happens, that you have an inspired New Testament writer that goes back and, uh, and draws out an event and uses the event or uses more particularly as I'm thinking the idea of a character from the Old Testament as an object lesson and says remember this person uh, this is what this person's life means or at least this is a lesson from this person's life um, and I think there, that that would probably maybe be a, a, an interesting s- uh, series to pursue or connection to pursue uh, because there are several of those uh, and the the idea I think to maybe that would be interesting to look at is to notice how of all the things that are maybe present or that we can know or that we might seem to know about that particular character in the original context of the Old Testament, how is it that the New Testament writers use that particular person, uh, not like Lot's wife and the aspect of uh, Noah and Abraham and different individuals that. Are brought out. One place I think that's central to go would be of course Hebrews chapter 11 and we even studied Hebrews 11 as a, uh, as a theme through one year and talked about all those evidences of faith. Uh, but sometimes uh, people uh, are known somewhat slightly in that we don't know a lot of background from them even from the text of the Old Testament but they are mentioned in the New Testament and sometimes for a very specific reason and there's a lesson for us I think in that regard. Uh, what do you think about Esau? When I bring him up, uh, what's your perception of Esau? Uh, you, of course, Esau is the older brother of Jacob, the son of Isaac in the Old Testament, and is certainly his story in the book of Genesis, where he's mentioned in the story of the patriarchs it is a prominent story. But what's interesting is that we, uh, one thing that's interesting in this is that we really don't see Esau. And don't maybe recognize him in the text much more than the times in which he's connected with his brother, Jacob. And Jacob becomes the prominent one. So it's either Jacob and Esau or it's Jacob. And we don't spend a lot of time talking about maybe thinking about Esau. Yet he is mentioned in the New Testament. And it becomes an object lesson of that. It's easy to compare sibling, isn't it? Uh, you think about the contrast between Jacob and Esau in the Old Testament, and we recognize that, that what, that's what's brought out many times in the text. Is in the very beginning when we're first introduced to them as boys in the same home. It's Esau's this kind of guy, Jacob's this kind of guy. They're two different people. And I wonder sometimes, you know, when I, when I went to college, uh, uh, you, you sort of get an identity sometimes when you go away from home. When I went to college, and I th- th- I wasn't there very long before I was married, I had an identity and it wasn't Dave or even Davey that my, my, my family would call me and there was none of the Smitties I was known as Mike Schmidt's brother and that was my identity as I walked around campus oh I know you, you're Mike Schmidt's little brother uh, I was known by my brother and I don't, I don't resent that There's sometimes I scratch my head about it because Mike and I are very much different in a lot of ways but Mike was the one who was well known I was the one that wasn't well known so everybody just said that's Mike Schmidt's brother That's who Esau was. He was Jacob's older brother. And the idea that he was the older brother, again, is perplexing from the standpoint of who we remember the most about. And of course we know why that's true. It's because it's through Jacob that God would fulfill the redemptive promise. It's Jacob that the one that takes the prominent position. um, And it's his children then that continue on in the story uh, and not Esau's children. But he typifies... In many regards, I'm going to talk a little bit about him tonight. Esau typifies, I think, uh, several different things about the, the uh, person's relationship to God and relationship to others. I believe he typifies someone who is given, given great advantage and opportunity uh, spiritually and even physically in his relationship to God and his family. But because he makes the wrong choices, he robs himself of the blessings that God could bestow upon him. He sabotages that. And there are folks that do that in their lives they're set up for good things and they come along and they blow themselves up in terms of what's going to come up, uh, happen in their life uh, he, could, he never becomes what he could have become and that's maybe one epitaph we could think about in terms of Esau he's I mentioned the firstborn son of Isaac and Rebekah and he was especially loved by his father, father it says in verse 27 so the boys grew and Esau was a skillful hunter a man of the field but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents and Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And so there's the distinction between the two boys. Not only are they different in terms of their character and their physical appearance, but they're also different in terms of the favoritism of their parents. That one is loved by one and the other one's loved, uh, the other one's loved by the other. And that sets the stage for the whole, as we understand, the whole intriguing story of Jacob and Esau and their relationship one with another. Uh, what happens that separates these two boys is, is, goes beyond just the aspect of Jacob's deceit and Esau's gullibility um, I believe no doubt it's rooted in the aspect that their parents played favorites with them and the aspect that the, they, did, the, they were able to recognize that. But Esau in the end was a man who we able to see a good side of If we fast forward to the time when Jacob's been away for a while and he's coming back and Jacob is so afraid that Esau's going to kill him like he intended to do years before that at the end of Genesis there's this great reunion the end of that story when Esau, uh, against all odds, is willing to forgive his brother and they come back together. So we see a good side of Esau, much like we do with Jacob's brothers uh, in the aspect that it ends as being a story of forgiveness so he has this good side about him. He was able to show kindness to his brother, and they were even able to get along and live together. But there are a couple of events that define Esau's life in the sense that I say this because they are the things that the New Testament writers remember about Esau and that are brought out as spiritual lessons. Esau was one who was taken advantage of by his brother. He was an individual who did not get what he necessarily had the opportunity to have in life because he was manipulated by his brother Jacob. And this is especially seen in the events of Genesis chapter 27. Near the end of Isaac's life, we remember that Jacob masqueraded as his brother Esau. He literally stole his father's blessing from his brother, pretending to be Jacob when he was not. And after Jacob realized that, uh, that when after, after uh, uh, Isaac realized that Jacob had fooled him, uh, that there was this uh, very great lamenting on Esau's part. But in Genesis chapter 27, Isaac says, your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. And Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright and now look, he has taken away my blessing. And so there is in that occasion, obviously, focus put on Jacob as being the bad guy, so to speak. His name even presents it to Esau as he thinks about it. He's named right. He supplanted me. He took advantage of me. And stole away my blessing. But before this takes place, there is another event. It is in, in, in some senses more remote in the sense that it doesn't take place in a time in which the whole family is involved. It's just Jacob and Esau, the two brothers. In Genesis chapter 25, when Jacob comes along and simply makes a deal with his brother Esau. And it's in this transaction where he takes he, he buys away the birthright of Esau that we're able to see Esau's culpability in his own problem. And that's an important thing to recognize when we look at characters. It's not only to see what they did right and wrong, but do they, were they able to recognize and can we recognize what made them the way that they were and why they're responsible for what they have done. Certainly that's something we need to try to think about teaching our children as they grow older. But Esau made his own choices. As we've been getting ready to study this this particular uh, event in the class at Seven Lakes, one thing that we've been looking at as we go through the patriarchs and look at these events is the aspect of personal responsibility. Uh, these folks are under the superintendence of God and the things that take place in the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises, but every place we stop and every place we look at what happens to these things, people, good and bad, there's this aspect of the personal responsibility of faith that's in view. It's never without that that these things take place. And so it talks about this aspect you see of Esau uh, selling away his birthright uh, in this. Now we think about the selling away of the birthright and we'll we'll look a little bit more at this particular event in just a moment as we look at the transaction itself. It helps us in understanding what's taking place here, what the birthright is all about. Esau was the set of a, was one of the sets of twins, but we know from the scriptures itself that Esau was the oldest remember His brother came out holding on to his heel, and so he was born first. And as such, he was entitled to the family birthright. He was entitled, you see, to the to the advantage that came to the one who was the firstborn son in a family, and there were physical advantages of that. Primarily, the aspect of the inheritance that what the birthright indicated, uh, the law of the birthright indicated, is if you were the firstborn, you got a double portion. So if they were two fellows, then you got two-thirds of the inheritance. Uh, but you got a double portion of what all the other children got because you were the firstborn. And knowing that, and what we have to recognize is Esau didn't get that because he was a better person, because he was uh, more intelligent, uh, because he was bigger and mightier. He got that simply because he came out of the birth canal first. He was firstborn, and that's the reason he would get that. And it was His. There was no way that anybody could take that away from him unless you see he was willing to give it up or in some way surrender it. Now, what we, I think, recognize as well that that for Jacob. And Esau would have been a significant amount. In fact, if you look ahead at chapter thirty-six and verse seven, uh, it talks about that the possessions of the two boys was so too great for them to dwell together in the land where they were strangers. They could not support them because of their livestock. That at the end, they had a lot of stuff and they had they were very very wealthy. And that would have come through this aspect of the inheritance. But there is a spiritual advantage as well to be the firstborn. And that advantage had to do with the aspect of uh, the place of the the authority in the family as the one who would be understood to be the patriarch and in in essence in terms of that particular age the priest of the house. That it would flow from the father to the firstborn son and the son then had the ability to uh, invoke the blessings upon his own children that would come after as Abraham did for Isaac and Isaac would do for uh, for, uh, Jacob and Esau, particularly Jacob in this case. And it went back to Abraham from the standpoint of the spiritual advantage of the one who would lead the, the, the family of Abraham in the generations that would follow. So it was through Esau, by right, that the promises of Abraham were to come. Certainly they would flow naturally that way. So there were things at stake here when Esau comes stumbling in from the field uh, all weary and tired and decides that he will sell his birthright. This wasn't an insignificant event and when we think about what takes place here, and let's read it together, we recognize maybe that Jacob as well understood the importance of this. But in Genesis chapter 25, beginning in verse 29, it says, Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and as, as he was weary, and Jacob said to Esau, or Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I'm weary. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I'm about to die, so what is this birthright to me? Then Jacob said, Swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils, and he ate and drank, arose and went away. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now, make mention of that last phrase first, because I think that uh, there are times in which it's the the last phrase that gives meaning and certainly emphasis to what's already been said. And that seems to be one of these occasions. Uh, I believe what the text is telling us is not that Uh, that uh, after he sold it he despised it. That may certainly have been involved but I think more to the point what the writer is telling us is that that's what this is all about. This is what happens here is that Esau despised his birthright. He held it to such low esteem that he'd be willing to sell it for a pot of stew. And so the text is pointing out to us this aspect of what goes on in the heart of an individual who would engage in this transaction understanding what The value of the birthright was, and so when we think about what it was worth to Esau, we recognize it must. We we think it might have been a difficult thing for him to give up, or certainly it might be difficult for us to understand how this takes place. Who would trade that for a meal? There are some important considerations here in this, because I think we make lessons we make lessons from this event for ourselves. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, we're going to talk about that passage in just a moment. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 calls Esau a profane man. Also calls him an adulterous man, but the idea of profanity is really at the center of how the writer of Hebrews is characterizing Esau. And that's why I said before, it's fascinating to see how a person's life can sometimes be condensed through inspired language to a central lesson about who this person was or what he reflects to us. And that's what Esau is to us in terms of the story of the Old Testament. He is the profane one. Well, what in what way? Use bad language? Well, that's not what it indicates here. The idea of profanity means that he does not esteem something that is valuable with its inherent value. Or he doesn't esteem something that is sacred. He sees it as common and commonplace. So profanity has to do with a person's estimation of that which is valuable and the lowering of it in his own opinion. So what we notice about Esau is that he was a profane man. And that's, this is the event that presents this. I would not suggest that this is the only event that would show, if we were able to see them, that would maybe show this attitude in Esau's life. But this is a big one. And certainly it's this one that leads to the next one. Where finally Esau realizes, oh, I made a big mistake here. And he wishes to change it all. But what are some of the considerations in this that would help us to understand how a person could make this choice? Well, in verse 32, he says, Esau says, "Look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me?" Then Jacob said, "Swear to me of this day." So he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob. One thing I think that certainly we recognize is that from the text itself is that Esau was willing to do this because of the urgency of the moment. He, the the idea here that this is a, this the, I'm really in trouble here and I got to take care of this right now. And so the circumstance played a vital part in the choice that he made. Who among us would not concede that about ourselves? That the choices we make many times are driven by the moment that we're in the circumstances and how we read those circumstances. I doubt that he was ready to die and most commentators make that that assumption that he probably wasn't ready to fall on the ground. But he thought that he was. And that's really all that's involved here in terms of what the text focuses on. It doesn't go on to explain whether or not he was really famished or what his nutritional condition was or whether or not he was so weak that he couldn't make a, 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 a good decision. It simply points out that this was his reasoning that I need to do this right now because what good is it if, a, if I die if I have a birthright? And so he was deceived into thinking that if he didn't do something right then and give in to the proposal of Jacob that it wouldn't matter. And Sometimes we're driven by the urgency of the moment. Satan is very able to make us believe that you don't have any choice in this matter. You've got to do this. You don't have any choice. There's no other way out of this. And so maybe we lie or we deceive or we find ourselves going in a direction and taking the counsel of those around us that make us do things that, that accomplish things that are unspiritual, make decisions that are unspiritual. Sometimes we find out later on it wasn't all that urgent, but it's the urgency of the moment that becomes the crux of the temptation. Sometimes making decisions. Simply from the standpoint of focusing our eyes on what's happening right now and putting ourselves in a position to think that this has to be done, we're forced into a position, is decision-making that's fraught with regrets. But it may be also we could consider that what Esau was really doing here was choosing the sensual over the spiritual. And that's not disconnected from the point that we just made. He was judging everything by how he felt because he was guided only by the physical. And that's why the writer of Hebrews, I believe, would use the term profane. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 16, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Albert Barnes says that the word profane here refers to one who by word or conduct treats religion with contempt or has no reverence for what is sacred. Now the birthright was sacred. Certainly it was sacred simply from the standpoint that it was so valuable in the presentation of the inheritance. And Esau, at least at this point, was willing to say it's worth giving up. Now, did he consider that before this? Maybe so. It may be that, and, and one particular individual commented on this, made the speculation that this had come up in conversation before, maybe between the brothers, that Jacob really wanted to have the majority of the inheritance, and Esau treated it like, well, that's a big deal to me. And that because, you see, Jacob understood that Esau was willing to treat his inheritance with such profanity and commonality that. That opened the door for him to take advantage of that. And I think that that could very well be true. We have to be careful about that. The things that are sacred to us, we need to present as being sacred. If they are are things that are are valuable, we need to treat them like they're valuable. Every moment of our life, or Satan will provide an opportunity from which we will be given the opportunity to make this kind of transaction in our life. But Esau certainly chose the present over the future. The birthright was what certainly we understand that it was then it was something that was going to give him benefit, not now, but later on. Now, if he did die, if he was going to die, then his choice wasn't foolhardy. What good is a birthright if you die? You see, there's some there's some reasoning that makes sense in all of that, and we should recognize that as well, that when Satan comes along to try to choose, get us to choose between that which... Uh, is urgent for the moment and seems important over those things that are spiritual, particularly when it has to do with the sensual and the, and the spiritual or that which is now and that which is later on. There's some reasoning in all of that that makes sense. Well, if I don't do this now, then what's going to happen? But the Christian has always presented this aspect of another alternative. And the spiritual alternative is always out there connected with the aspect of his faith in the future. In reality, he tosses away what is to be. For the gratification of the moment, and that so typifies, I think, the generation that we're in. Uh, that so many times in which individuals are willing to get rid of whatever is unpleasant for the moment, jettison out, get rid of it because it makes me feel bad, uh, and we we give up a lot of, I think, uh, real spiritual benefits sometimes when we, that's the approach that we take. You, you take, I don't know if I have this passage up here, you, you take the example of Moses. You know. In the context of Hebrews 11, there are a number of individuals who show faith. And in showing their faith, they show this opposite view of looking to what is future as opposed to what's now. By faith, when Moses became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God, rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Esteeming the reproach of Christ's greater riches in the treasures of Egypt... For he looked to the reward. Now what's the writer telling us? That Moses made this very difficult choice to give up the riches of being in Pharaoh's household because he was looking ahead. He wasn't just looking at what was happening right then and what that choice would cost him. So he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. Uh, And so the aspect here of Moses being an example of just the opposite of this profanity. (laughs) The other element of that, and I think maybe I skipped over that, and that is the aspect of the present over the future. But the other element, I think, in terms of we have, uh, as we make application, is, is how do we apply this to ourselves? Uh, do we have a birthright? And if we have a birthright in terms of a relationship to God, spiritual birthright, what does it consist of? And that becomes an important way to apply the story. And I believe that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get us to look at when he brings Esau into the discussion. That there's a possibility that individuals can make choices that have long-lasting, irreparable uh, consequences in their life. And that that profanity, that unwillingness to hold on to what truly is valuable in life certainly uh, is 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 a challenge of our faith. I would suggest to you that we do have a birthright. It's a birthright that's connected with the aspect in the same way it was in the physical Old Testament story with the aspect of inheritance. Now, not your physical inheritance, but your spiritual inheritance. That as Christians, you see, we have spiritual blessings that we enjoy through Christ that are described in precisely that language. Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, the Apostle Paul says, "...and if you are Christ..." then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now you can't read that verse without recognizing that he's making reference to this very old, same Old Testament circumstance that existed with Jacob and Esau. One individual, you see, would have the birthright that would connect him with the promises to Abraham. He would be the one, you see, he would be in control of the inheritance. And so it is when, the writer, when Paul in Galatians talks about us, he's making that connection of the spiritual blessings that come through the seed of Abraham being ours as a way of inheriting those blessings. And in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, and heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together with Him. Now those are comforting passages, and when we read them in the context of Romans 8 or Galatians chapter 3 or other places, what the writer is presenting to us is that we have a great treasure We have something that's been provided for Christ that we could not get in any physical way through any physical inheritance. That it comes spiritually because Jesus has died for us and because we're connected with Jesus. So we're heirs of the things and the promises of God because we're joint heirs with Christ, because we share with Christ. In Titus chapter 3, verse 7, Paul says, that having been justified by His grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That we come into the family of God. Peter describes this as heaven itself, as an aspect of this inheritance. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again, I mean to be born, begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Now that'll thrill us, that when we come into the family of God, we have an inheritance. And just like the birthright, that was present in the blessings of the birthright that that were present in the Old Testament that situation exists in order not only to bless the individual who had it by right but also to provide the security that came along with it so that the firstborn son had it because he was the firstborn son and no one could take it away from him unless he was willing to give it up it was his but of course what we recognize is that just for Esau it could be given up it could be bargained away and it could be traded for something of much less value. And so our birthright has enormous value. Despite Calvinistic teaching, once a person comes into Christ, he can choose to go out of Christ and become an unbeliever and lose that inheritance. And that's why there are so many warnings associated with this, that a person can lose their inheritance with Jesus Christ if they fail to continue to have faith in Him. I'm right to the words of Jesus when Peter said in Mark chapter 10, Lord, we've left everything for you uh, to follow you. What are we going to have? What is our reward? And Jesus' answer says, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. I I believe that's a very um misused passage certainly it's misapplied in many ways particularly in the in the context of the prosperity gospel that's so popular today that Jesus is promising that if that if, that if I'm willing to sacrifice for Christ that he'll give me a house and a car and all these other things I believe that Peter's words to Je- Jesus words to Peter reflect this very image of the inheritance of the aspect of being in a family that if you leave one and you go to another do you lose out and what Jesus was, was telling Peter is no God's In a position to give you more than anything, more than you ever give away. More than you ever sacrifice. Not only in the aspect of providing for you a spiritual family and spiritual brothers and spiritual sisters and spiritual security, but in the end, in the ages to come, eternal life.
1: Now what's that tell me?
0: There's no greater birthright than the one that you and I have. No greater blessing than the ones that you and I are entitled to. But the story of Esau is that we can sell it that we can give it away by choosing to pursue material blessings of this life and the neglect of spiritual things, by choosing to simply fulfill the sensual pleasures of this moment rather than to suffer for Christ. And so John warns about loving not the things of the world. Don't give your attention to the things that of this world, but rather the things of eternal nature. To work not for the food that perishes, but for the food that does not perish. And it's always a challenge for us You see, to be able to have the faith it takes to make the decision that so many fail to make of choosing spiritual things over the physical things. We neglect to worship God. We neglect to give Him the thanks that He deserves for the things that He's done, to spend time in His Word, to grow spiritually. And when we neglect those things, we're putting ourselves in a vulnerable position to lose our inheritance. If we're not careful... I think one of the lessons of Esau... if we're not careful about this... challenge of being profane... and making the wrong choices in life... there may come a time when it's too late... to reverse those things... and again... this is inherent in the story of these two boys... there's manipulation... and there's deceit... and Jacob is is, is at fault for all... For, for the things he did to his brother... but the consequences that are borne out... by the biblical text... and that are reinforced by the New Testament text... specifically is that there came a time in which those things could not be reversed. And you go back to Hebrews chapter 12. I think I have it up here. The Hebrew writer says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. He's telling them you need to try to be like God, pursue holiness, and do the right thing. And you need to seek peace with God. Looking carefully, lest any one fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears." Now, I believe that those words, it's it's imperative that we look at them in the context in the point that the Hebrew writer is making from the standpoint of encouraging individuals to not go back to the law of Moses and not give up the spiritual superiority of the covenant of Christ for an older, uh, uh, weak covenant uh, that came through Moses. He wants them to not trade what is spiritually significant, their spiritual birthright, for something that is a pot of stew from the standpoint of salvation. And so Esau makes a perfect example for that. But I think he also makes a point in the context of this about the idea of bitterness springing up and the idea that others may very well be influenced by the choices that I make and then there is no going back to undo what has been done. And so the writer reminds the Hebrew Christians about the eventual remorse of Esau that's contained in the story. He came to be sorry for what he'd allowed to slip away. He was angry with his brother, but when his father was given, had given the blessing already to Jacob, and then Esau comes in, and his father recognizes what's taking place, Esau pleads with him, Please, father, don't you have anything for me? I know you gave the blessing to my brother, but certainly you have something for me. And his father's words must have been, you see, heart-rending. Because basically what Jacob said was, Well, there's a little something here for you, but I can't undo it. I can't undo it. I've already blessed your brother, Jacob. Now there may be some perplexities in our understanding why Jacob couldn't just reverse it and undo all of that. But I think what's inherent in this aspect is that there are choices we make to which the consequences cannot fully be repaired. Some suggest that Esau was not really sorry. That he said he was and it says there that he sought repentance with tears but he wasn't really sorry because immediately he goes out and tries to kill his brother and there may be some fruits of repentance that we could view in all of that I find it difficult that the Hebrew writer would emphasize the aspect that he sought it with tears that he was certainly emotionally desirous to change the thing if he wasn't making a point about the aspect that it doesn't make any difference about his emotional response of regret it could not be undone that the hopelessness of this passage had to do with the aspect of the profanity and the choices of profanity that are continually made in a person's life and the influence that they have. You notice that the Hebrew writer says, he calls him, a fornicator and a profane person, but in the passage before that, he says to the Hebrew Christians, Look carefully, lest any one fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by this many become defiled. So, the thing in view here is not just Esau and how this affected his life, no doubt that was in his mind as he pleaded with his father to reverse it all. But the Hebrew writer is making the point that when we make those choices of choosing what is profane and putting the physical things over the spiritual things, we not only impact ourselves, but we impact others. And once we make those choices over and over again, we can't go back and undo them. You think any parents have ever felt that? as they neglected the spiritual things of life when their children were young and they went off to the ball games, they went off this way and didn't teach their children the importance of assembling and taking, and taking their children to Bible study and studying the Bible at home with their children and then they get to the point where they can make their own choices and they choose something else besides God. And oh, if we could go back and we plead with tears to go back and make that. But no, that's the, imp- that's the implications of the profane choices that are made is that there are consequences that can be undone doesn't mean you can't be forgiven but there are consequences that can't be undone and so it was that the birthright and the blessing that has slipped away from Esau represent in the text this very thing now if we're talking about salvation and maybe we should make this point to be clear if we're talking about salvation we're certainly not concluding that Esau could not have found a place for forgiveness if he had repented I don't believe that that's what the Hebrew writer is pointing to. Salvation is not under discussion. And even the aspect of this whole context, the idea of the relationship with Jacob and Esau, the discussion is not about Esau being lost and Jacob being saved. It's about the election of God and the choices God made as to which one the promise would come through. And that's the way these things went. And when they went that way, coupled with the personal responsibility for Esau to make the spiritual choices that he made, could not be undone. I read an interesting comment about this real quickly that I thought made in terms of trying to reconcile this aspect that came to the point where Esau could not find any repentance. And some of the translations say in his father, could not find any place for repentance in his father. But in reconciling that, one person made the comment that maybe what's under discussion here is that. Because Esau was not profane one time but he was secular and profane over and over and over again and he despised the things that had to do with the spiritual promise that after a while his father came to recognize this boy not fit to be the one to carry the seed. And therefore when he came back and said undo this his father said no I won't undo it. But this is right in terms of who it is that's going to get the birthright. Now the text doesn't say that. doesn't point that out specifically but I know this, that we qualify ourselves for the blessings of God by the spiritual choices that we make. We disqualify ourselves for the blessings of God when we make the profane choices and choose what is physical. And that's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. You pray to God because you want Him to bless Him, but if you pray to God to be seen of others, you got your reward. You pray in secret, and you keep it to yourself, and it's between you and God, and you do it the way God wants you to do it with true heartfelt devotion to Him, then He'll reward you openly. But if you do it for a profane, secular reason, if you focus on what you want for the moment and that becomes the motivation, then you got what you got. And that's your reward. The wise man said, buy the truth and do not sell it. Do you know what it's worth to be a child of God and to have the truth? Do we know the value of what we have from the God who loved us and brought us to this point in our spiritual life? Don't abandon that. Don't allow anything to get in the way of ultimately receiving the blessing, the inheritance comes from that. If you're not a Christian, if you're not in Christ, you have no spiritual birthright. You have to be in Christ. Everything that we have of an inheritance nature that comes to us, that ultimately that will provide for us a home in heaven comes because what Jesus has done in our relationship to Him, our connection with Him. So if you would have the inheritance you desire this valuable prize that should never be abandoned, then you must be connected with your Savior. Will you die as He died? Will you die to sin? Will you be buried as He was buried in baptism? Will you join Him in the resurrection to a new life by coming up out of the waters of baptism free from your sin? Maybe we can help you. Let's stand and sing.